And um, in this passage of Scripture, it says, If my people who are called by my name, and this is God speaking, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and heal their lands. And as you guys know, um, that passage of Scripture um, was found on um, uh, yard signs and uh, that were scattered throughout um, a lot of people's yards and alongside the roads and, and those things during this last election. And um, as a remembrance for us who are believers to be praying and, and to be seeking God during that time so that God would um, hear our praise, prayers and, and give us the... the, the we, well, hopefully we're praying for a godly leader. And we know that, that when Jesus Christ comes, that he really is the only true godly leader out there. But there are, are, there are godly men and women that live among us that, that could step into that position. And, and I say that in, in, in light of what I want to say to you again this morning and, and what I said last week. Because this morning, I choose to revisit this verse before we begin to get into our study of chapter 21 in order to address another issue of importance in regards to not only our individual responsibility, but our, our collective responsibility as a church to honestly look at ourselves in, in light of the current state of our nation and to see what we should be doing, or better yet, what I, what I would say is what we should continue to be doing. I know that a lot of you guys were active during this last election season and um, uh, were active in prayer and, and um, uh, raising interest for your, who, you know, for the candidate who you wanted to see elected. And I mean that on both the, the, the state issue and on the national issue, but also in regards to the, the, the ballot issues that were uh, before us, even in our own city and our own state. And, and in doing that, you actively sought the Lord. And, and now that these elections are over, my message to the church, to our church, or I think God's message to the church as a whole, is to not just sit in our chairs or sit in our pews and, and, and stop doing what God calls us to do, that we need to continue on. Matter of fact, I believe that we need to press into the things that God would have us be doing with either, even greater intensity now that the elections are over. And um, for those of you who were here last week, you heard me talk about our need to continue in fervent prayer for our nation. We have a responsibility to do that, to pray for our nation and to pray for our leaders. And, and, and I believe even more so than during the election period, because now is the opportunity that God's given for, to us for him to work in and through us. And, and prayer is the foundation for that, fervent prayer for our nation and for our leaders. But also, if you remember, I talked about last week that we have this need, in addition to being in prayer, we have this need to turn away from sin, individually and the church as a whole, to seek holiness and purity and to be sanctified by God, to turn to God seeking his forgiveness so that as it says in Second Chronicles, that he might heal his land, who, heal our land. Who, who here, and, and this isn't political, guys, and the only reason I bring these kinds of things up is because in the political world today, it's turned to issues of morality. It has. Issues that, that, that face the church and face us as individuals as, and as parents and as, as Christians who are living in the world and not being of the world. And, 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 and so with that, who here I mean, really thinks that our, our land needs to be healed? Who here would like to see God heal our land? And, 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 and that's what this is really in. That's, that's God's heart, and I, that's my heart. And as a pastor, I want to be that vessel that communicates that and encourages that to the church and go, how can we practically be a part of this? And, 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 and prayer is the foundation for that, but turning from our sin and also the church in order that we might best serve God and take advantage of this time that he's given us. So as I examine this verse from 2 Chronicles again, I want to point out to you that we who are called by the name of God also have this need, this great need to humble ourselves. I mean, that's how it starts, right? If my people who are called by my name humble themselves... And, and we have this need to humble ourselves before God, or as Micah 6, chapter 6, verse 8 says, it says, to walk humbly with 
our God. Now, the Hebrew word for humble is the word kana, and it's used to describe this. It's, it's used in the Hebrew dictionary, it's, it's, it's used to describe the attitude or an attitude of a proper low status in relationship to an authority. However, in the context of what we're being called to as Christians, as followers of God, we must understand that that walking humbly with God or humbling ourselves before God is so much more than an attitude, isn't it? It's more than an attitude, rather it's a state of being. And, And this is the place, really, the state of being is an entire dependence upon God. That's the state in which we are to reside. That's what it means to walk in humility with God. That's what it means to humble ourselves before God, is to to be in the place of entire dependence upon God. Therefore, we must see that humility before God and towards God is our first duty. Not only that, I would say it's the highest virtue for a believer, because without humility, the Bible makes it clear that we'll never experience these things. Without humility, you're never going to experience God's presence, God's favor, or the power of His Spirit working in and through your lives. And that is the only way that we can be changed or this world in which we live in can be changed is through the power of God. In other words, without humility, let me break this down for you a different way. Without humility, there's no abiding faith or love or joy or strength. Andrew Murray wrote about this in his book titled Humility, and he said, Humility is the only soil in which which virtue takes root. A lack of humility is the explanation of every defect and failure. In part, he says that because what's the opposite of humility? Pride, right? And so with that understanding, he says, lack of humility or pride is the explanation of every defect and failure. He says, humility is not so much a virtue along with all the others, but it is the root of all because it alone takes the right attitude before God and allows him as God to do all. Andrew Murray goes on to say, he says, listen guys, he says, the call to humility has been too little regarded in the church. I say amen to that. The call to humility has been too little regarded in the church because, he says, its true nature and importance has been too little apprehended. It's not something that we bring to God or that He bestows. It's simply the sense of entire nothingness that comes when we see how truly God is everything. It reminds me of that passage of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 6 where he says, Woe is me, for I am undone. And he says that because he's brought before the very throne of God into the presence of God, and he sees himself as a sinful man in light of a holy and perfect God, and he's broken. He's humbled. He, as Andrew Murray points out here, he says, he says, it comes as, as humility is simply with the sense of entire nothingness that comes when we see how truly God is everything. He says, when the creature realizes that this is, the, is a place of honor, humility before God is a place of honor. When we realize that, and he says, not only when we realize that, he says, but when it consents to be, when we consent to be with our will, our mind, and our affections, the vessel in which the life and the glory of God are to work are, and manifest themselves, he sees, meaning we see, at that moment, in that time, that humility is simply the acknowledging, humility is simply acknowledging the truth of his position as creature and yielding to God, his place, period. So in this, we must see that this call, God's call for us to humble ourselves before him is a call to yield to God his place in our lives in our families, in our finances, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our church. Specifically, a call to yield to God His place, His place as 
our provider and our protector, his place as our Lord and as our King, and his place as our Savior and as our Judge. And when, we, and when we're doing these things, we can rest assured that um, we will be useful tools who bring forth God's healing upon this land. Now, as we look to Genesis chapter 21, um, that's a little too low, Seth. Back there fiddling. Quit fiddling. Check, check. Okay, thank you. <laughs> okay. Sorry, I got excited. Um, as we look to chapter 21, if you want to look there with me as we begin to study through this, what we're going to read about here is we're going to read about the fulfillment of God's promise. I love this chapter. We read about the promise of, of uh, 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 the fulfillment of God's promise to give Abraham and Sarah a son. If you remember, 25 years had passed since God had first spoke this promise to them. And during those years of waiting, Abraham and Sarah had times of doubt. You ever had times of doubt? Yeah, we can relate to that. And not only that, they only had times of doubt. They had times we've studied through where they, they stumbled in faith, in their faith. But their faithlessness, as we talked about last week, their faithlessness, their doubt, and their times of faithlessness, they did not deter God from being faithful. It's been said that faith is not a pill we take, although I wish it was sometimes. Faith is not a pill we take. It's a muscle we work as, we, as we're given the opportunity through times of trial to exercise and grow our faith by waiting upon God, by trusting in His faithfulness and watching His promises come to pass. In 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter, he wrote, about this in chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, and he said this, he said, he says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, is tested by fire and may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And these truths point out to us that this life we've been called to live, this, this life of walking in humility with God, that this life we've been called to live, these things that we read here and what we read in this chapter, it, it points out to us that, that life, our life, our Christian life, is one that's filled with hills and valleys, is it not? And, 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 and if you think about it, there can't be hills without valleys, geographically speaking, and spiritually as well, and emotionally in, in the life that, we, that we've been given to live. Solomon, he really expressed this same thought when he wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 4, and he said, there's a time to weep and there's a time to laugh. Hills and valleys. And in the eternal sense, we know that heaven is a place of unending joy, yet hell is a place where there is unending suffering. But while we remain here on this earth, we must expect joy and sorrow and laughter and tears. Now, Abraham and Sarah knew about these hills and valleys. As we've been studying their life, we've seen the ups and downs that they've gone through. And now with the coming of Isaac into their home, we once again see that he, through his birth, brought sorrow, but it also brought joy. And as we look at the persons involved in this important event, we can learn some valuable lessons about not only um, some basic Christian doctrines, things that we build our lives on, that we put our faith in, but, but more importantly, I think, in regards to the application sense of it, we also learn how to live this Christian life that God's called us to, a life of faith and a life of humility, both in the times of rejoicing, which is truthfully a little easier to do, but also in those times of weeping in those valleys where we can still have that faith and humility and still be filled with the joy and the peace that comes from knowing that God is with us and for us. With that, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 21 and follow along with me as I read, it says, And the Lord visited Sarah, and he said, 
as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son, whom was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. And now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. She also said, verse 7, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. So the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on that same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. Therefore she said to Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. But, verse 12, God said to Abraham, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. Yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman, but he is your seed. So Abraham, or because he is your seed, so Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and the skin of water and put it on her shoulder, and he gave it to the boy Hagar and sent her away. Then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Verse 15, in the water and the skin was used up, and she placed the boy under the, one of the shrubs, and then she went and sat down across from him, a distance of about a bow shot. For she said to herself, let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite of him and lifted her voice and wept. Yet in verse 17, it says that God heard the voice of the lad, and the angel of God called the Hagar out of heaven and said, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise and lift up the lad and, and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad drink. So God, verse 20, was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Let's pray. Father, as we study through your word, I pray, God, that you would help us to see these aspects of faith in regards to your promises that we can apply to our own lives. Lord, each one of us desires to hear from you today. God, that you would make yourself known to us through your word, God, by the power of your spirit. Lord, we know that you've spoken promises to each one of us, and we have a living hope through your son, Jesus Christ. And God, you've spoken, spoken individual promises to us about our kids and about our, our, our relationships and, and about your provision and, and, and about your leading and guiding of us individually and Lord, at times we're called to wait upon these promises coming to fulfillment. And, and in that waiting, God, in that time of testing, we do doubt. The enemy comes and lies to us and brings forth discouragement. And God, we feel insignificant at, at, in those times. And, and yet, Lord, we know that you're faithful. And even, Lord, as we study the faith and, uh, uh, of Abraham and Sarah and see your promises being fulfilled to them. I pray, God, that we would take encouragement in regards to the promises that we're waiting on that you've spoken to us as we can see and know, God, that what you have said will come to pass. I pray for anyone here this morning, God, who is discouraged, who feels like they may be um, in the wilderness. I pray, God, that you would reveal to them that you've not forsaken them, that you are by their side, and God, that in your perfect timing, at, at a set time, that you too will come and fulfill your will in their life. I pray these things all in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verses, in these first verses, it's important that you, you notice in, 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 in verse 1 that we're, we're told that, that just as God said he would do, so he did. 
I love how that starts out. Just as God said he would do, so he did. And at the exact time it was supposed to happen, Sarah conceived and gave birth to a son. All in accordance to God's plan. And with purpose. And as we read about the fulfillment of God's promise coming to pass, we get a look at faith in relationship to God's promises or in light of God's promises. And, and, and um, these two things, faith and God's promises, are intimately connected. And there are things in this chapter, aspects of that, that we see being revealed as God interacts with Abraham and Sarah in this chapter that we can apply to our own lives. So as we read of God's promises or about the fulfillment of God's promises coming to pass, and we get a look into um, faith in light of God's promise, we need to remember this. We need to remember that Sarah had carried this burden, this heavy weight. It was a sorrowful thing. She had carried this burden not being able to conceive or give Abraham a son for many years. And at that time... Being barren came with many sorrows, culturally speaking, as it was considered to be even a curse from God if a woman could not give birth. In addition to that, I wonder, on a more personal level, what kind of looks or what kind of words Sarah must have seen or heard over those many years as she was unable to conceive and unable to give birth in light of the fact that her husband was named a father of a multitude. Remember, when God had changed Abraham's name from Abram to Abraham, that's what he did. He called him a father of a multitude. And at that time, Sarah had produced no children. And I'm sure there were smirks and, 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 and mocking and laughter behind her back. But now, all of that sorrow, all of that burden, all of that grief was replaced with the joy of the arrival of her son. And it says in these first verses that she was made to laugh. She was filled with joy. But we need to see that the birth of Isaac brought much more to this family than just joy. Much more to this world or those who saw it much more than joy considering, as we look at this in light of what God had spoken, considering the fact that this Isaac's birth was the fulfillment of God's promise. Remember, when God had first called Abraham back in chapter 12, he promised to make of him a great nation, a great nation by which the whole world would be blessed. Then God repeatedly to promise to Abraham over the years to give him the land in which he took him to, the land of Canaan, a promised land to Abraham and his descendants, this descendants that would rise up to be a mighty nation. And God promised to multiply them greatly. And it's important for us to remember these things in light of Isaac's birth because his birth reminds us at the very core, reminds us of the fact that God keeps his promises. In his own way, at a set time, in his own time, and in spite of Abraham and Sarah's occasional failures, we see ultimately that they exercised faith. They believed in God, and God honored their faith. This is confirmed in the book of Hebrews by the writer in chapter 11 and verses 11 through 12, who says, By faith, Sarah also herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age. Because, here's the reason why. It says, because she judged him faithful who had promised. And you and I who can take the whole context of the last 25 years and see their times of doubting, see their times of, of lack of faith, can wonder how the apostle who wrote this, this about this, or the Holy Spirit having brought this truth forth, how could this be the inconclusion that she judged him faithful who had promised. But in this, we see that connection between faith and the promises of God. As a matter of fact, the, the, in the book of Hebrews, in verse 12, it goes on to say that it just wasn't 
Sarah, that had this connection to the faith and the promises of God, it was also her husband. It says, therefore, from one husband, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in the multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. And, of course, that's referring to the nation of Israel, the descendants that came from Isaac. In addition to being a fulfillment of God's promise, Isaac, we need to understand that his birth also meant um, a reward, the rewarding of patience. It was a fulfillment of God's promise, but it was also the rewarding of patience. And here in verse 2, it gives attention to the fact, if you'll look there, that Sarah conceived and she bore him a son, Abraham a son, in his old age, when Abraham was a, a hundred years old. And when I, when I read that, I go, wow, that's kind of an understatement when it says that it was in his old age. Because a hundred and, and, and being able to still have a son is, is a big deal. But this is put here for purpose because his old age or Abraham's old age reminds us of the fact that he and Sarah, first of all, had been waiting on God for a long time. They've been waiting on God for 25 years. And the birth of this, of, of this son, Isaac, the, the son of promise, it, 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 and, and, and after all these years of waiting, really illustrates to us what Hebrews 6, verse 12 says, which says, through faith and patience, we inherit the promises of God. Through our faith and through our patience, waiting on God, we inherit the promises of God. And I know that we had talked about this previously when we were studying through chapter 16. If you remember, that was the time when, when um, in chapter 16, where it counted the time when Abraham had stumbled. He and Sarah, in their faith, and tried in that moment, at that time, after, those, after a certain amount of years, after about eight years of having received the promise, and, and, and yet not, re, and, or having been given the promise, and not having received the fulfillment of the promise, they, in chapter 16, after about eight years, took things into their own hands. In one sense, they were saying, we've waited long enough, it's plenty of time, so maybe we need to help God out. And in an attempt to bring forth a fulfillment of God's promise, we know that in their own way and in their own time, that Sarah gave to Abraham her handmaiden Hagar, and he took her as his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to a son by the name of Ishmael. But when we look here at the birth of Isaac, with this knowledge and in light of God eventually in his timing fulfilling his promises before them, we see that trusting in God's promises not only gives us a blessing at the end, but it also gives us a blessing while we are waiting. And I don't know about you, but that's sometimes hard for me to wrap my mind around because waiting is hard for me to do. Patience is something that I struggle with. But there is a blessing in the fulfillment of God's promises, but there is a blessing in waiting upon God to fulfill His promise. A blessing in the waiting. In that, when we are waiting, what it does is it provides the opportunity for us to exercise our faith. Waiting upon the promises of God with patience gives us the opportunity to exercise our faith. And in that time of waiting, in that time of exercising our faith, what happens is, is our character begins to develop. God builds His character in us. In fact, in James chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, we're told that when God, in those first eight verses of the book of James, we're told that when God wants to build our character, specifically in regards to the attribute of patience, it says that He gives us promises, He sends us trials, and then he tells us to abandon our doubts and trust in him. And trusting in God provides us and those around us with this opportunity to see God's power. That's a cool thing. And in verse 6 here of this chapter, we see that being revealed 
when Sarah said, and Sarah said, God had made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. And as Sarah proclaimed this, saying, all who will hear will laugh with me, she's pointing out the fact that the fulfillment of God's promise with the birth of Isaac was the reward of patience, and it was the revealing of God's power. A revealing of God's power that was manifested to her and her husband, but also to those who were around her who saw God work in this miraculous way. It was a revealing of God's power. This is one of the reasons for why God waited so long to do His work. And in Romans chapter 4, verses 17-21, through 21, speaking about this situation, we're told that God wanted Abraham and Sarah to be quote-unquote good as dead when Isaac was born. In order that Isaac's birth could be seen only as a miracle of God and not a marvel of human nature. I was watching this news feed the other day about um, uh, the uh, um, people who go, they, there's these people out there that, they're, they're professional record breakers. <laughs> and they want to be in the Guinness Book of World Records. And, and I don't recommend reading the article, it's probably not worth your time. But, but, you, but, but basically, the, the Guinness Book of World Records records these, 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 these marvels of human nature where people go, how, do someone, how is someone able to do that? And, and, and obviously, it's something that people look at and marvel at. They write books about it. It's accounted. And, and, and people spend money to buy these things. And I wasted time to read the article. But God waited to this point, at this place in time, in the lives of Abraham and, and, and Isaac, that, that the only explanation for what could have come to pass, or what, for what did come to pass, was that it was a work of God. I love that when that happens in the medical industry. When a person is, is diagnosed with a, a life-threatening disease, or given a, 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 a prognosis that they're only going to live for a certain amount of time, and then people pray for them, and they go back a week later, or two months later, and the doctor says, we have no explanation for why that, that what has happened to you has just has happened. And, and I think a lot of those people in a lot of those situations try to dismiss that as a marvel of human nature, something unexplainable that, that, that's taken place without giving credit to God, as if it, was, as if it wasn't some kind of miracle. But in our own lives, as we're waiting upon God for Him to do things, often it's because God doesn't want it to be explained away, the awesome work that He's doing by some kind of earthly explanation when it's truly only a work of God for the reason why it's come to pass. Bottom line is, faith in God's promises, it releases God's power. Faith in God's promises releases God's power. Waiting upon Him, relying upon Him, clinging to Him, trusting in Him to do the work that He said He's going to do. And all the while bearing testimony of that to those around us when they go, why or what? And we say, because God. And really, this is what Paul was speaking about, the releasing of God's power in relationship to faith in the book of Ephesians when he wrote to the early church and he said this. Listen carefully. He said in verse 20, he said, But what things were gained to me, these things I have counted loss for Christ. And what Paul's speaking about is, is his life before Christ and everything that he had, his own wisdom, his own strength, the, the knowledge that he had received, the resources that he had, he had acquired. He said, Everything that I had gained, everything that the world has to offer me. He says, I turned away and I counted those things for loss. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, from whom I have suffered the loss of all of these things and counted them as rubbish. He says that I may gain Christ Jesus and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through Faith, he says. He says, all of that has come to me by and through faith. He says, the righteousness which is God, from God by faith, he said, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. 
And Paul goes on to speak about the sufferings, and, and that's, that's in the context of this verse. But the point that we see here is Paul speaks of this power of God and this receiving of the power of God in his life as, as, as only through faith. And faith is what releases the power of God in our own lives. Now, the last thing I want to point out in regards to the fulfillment of God's promise, the promises, is that Isaac's birth was a step forward in God accomplishing his greater purpose. You and I have an advantage that Abraham and Sarah did not have, and that we can look back through time, down through history, and see God's plan from the beginning till now, having unraveled, having been made known to all of humanity. And this greater purpose and this greater plan that Isaac had, or that God had with Isaac's birth, again, it was only one step. It was a step forward in, in, in the bigger plan of what God wanted to do, in that we know that God's plan was to redeem, is to redeem our lost world. And this rested in the birth of Isaac. Considering that Isaac would beget Jacob. And we know that Jacob, through Jacob, would come 12 sons who would be the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And from Israel, the promised Messiah from the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ, would be born. Now this truth about God accomplishing and I point this out because this truth about God accomplishing his greater purpose through the fulfillment of each one of his promises, it's a testimony to us. It's a reminder to us that God who is sovereign, God who is in control of all things, through the fulfillment of his promises, is working a plan, a plan that he knows from the very beginning to the very end. It's a master plan. It's been laid out. It's been detailed. And even though we do not know every step along the way, we do know the end. A master plan, the Bible tells us, that we've been called to be a part of. That we've been invited to be a part of. And this is an encouraging reminder because there are times, I think, when we all wonder if what we are really doing is important to God. If our life is of value or if what God's called us to do is something significant. And we can rest assured that if we are faithful to trust in God's word, number one, and if we're faithful to do God's will, in other words, if we listen and have faith in what God has spoken and act upon that like Abraham and Sarah examples for us, then we will see that no matter how small or insignificant we perceive that link in the chain of God's promises to be, it's still we will see that it's part of God's master plan. That we're a part of God's master plan. And as a result of that, master plan, as a result of that link that we're a part of, we're helping to fulfill that greater purpose, that greater plan. And so the next time that we feel defeated, I think, or discouraged, we can remember Abraham and Sarah, and we can remember the faith that they had, and that, 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 that faith and the promises of God go together. Furthermore, we should remember that, that God keeps his promises. And, and, and in doing so, he gives us the power like he gave Abraham and Sarah the power to conceive Isaac. He gives us the power to do what we need to do when we're called upon to do it. When he wants us to do it. And what he wants us to do. And no matter how long we may have to wait, because sometimes there's a long time of waiting... But no matter how long we have to wait, we can trust God to accomplish his purposes. And it's evident from these verses that Abraham and Sarah trusted God. If you look at verse 3, there's the evidence. It's evident that even in their stumbling, even in their doubt, even in their lack of faith, they ultimately trusted God, considering verse 3 tells us that Abraham named his son Isaac, a name by which God had spoken to him, previously 
in the years before. And then according to verse 4, that he also circumcised him on the eighth day just as God had commanded him to do. And if you remember, that's in connection to the covenant that God had made with Abraham when he changed his name and, 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 and entered into this agreement with him and, bo- and, and called Abraham to circumcise um, not only Ishmael himself, but all of his servants within his house. And saying that that should be a mark for every one of his generation, everyone that, uh, every one of his descendants and all the generations to follow of the, of the acknowledgement of the, of the covenant that God had entered into with him, but also as a sign of the fact that God fulfills his promises. It was that outward sign. And so by naming his son Isaac and, and entering into the circumcision and the covenant that God had previously made, we see that it was an evidence of faith. In him, in Isaac, or in Abraham doing what God had commanded him to do. And the point is, as we look at this in relationship to our own lives, is that Abraham and Sarah's obedience to name their son Isaac and to circumcise him on the eighth day, as God previously instructed, was an evidence that their faith had grown, more importantly. That God had taken them from the place where there was doubt, where there was faithlessness, over those 25 years, and developed in them a greater faith. That seed that he had planted through his promises, God grew up over these years. Likewise, the evidence of our faith or the increasing of our faith on a day-to-day basis is revealed to us as we choose to obey God. How do you know that you have faith in God in the day-to-day? It's because you choose to obey him. You wake up and you say, my will be done, not your will be done, not my own. God, I will do what you say. I will trust in you. And because God's desire for us to obey him, this is really cool when you look at it in light of what we read in the Old Testament, because when we see and realize that God's desire for us to obey him is directly connected or rooted in our own well-being. If you remember when God gave the law, how many times did he say over and over again, repeatedly and repeatedly to the children of Israel, he said, do these things, keep my commands so that it what? so that it might go well with you. And when we keep that in mind, that God's desire for us to obey Him is rooted in in, in God's concern for our well-being, we can then understand why God desires for us to grow in faith. Because apart from faith, there's no obedience. And apart from obedience, there's no going well with us. And as a loving father who sees the end of all of us, then he desires, like he desired in Abraham and Sarah, to increase our faith, to grow our faith. Therefore, God, by means of trial, this is where it can get a little bit um, uncomfortable, but God, by means of trial and by means of testing, he will increase our faith as he proves himself to be faithful. So how has your faith grown? Through trial, through testing. And as we read on in these next verses, in in, in, in the the last remaining verses that we already read through, we see that this joyous hilltop experience that Abraham and Sarah um, are experiencing, as it's written about in these first seven verses, that that came with the birth of Isaac, it eventually, this, this, this birth and this time of joy, eventually carved a path into a deep valley, a time of testing, a time of trial. A time that was filled with family conflict, with jealousy, and with, with separation in the end. Yet in this, in this valley experience that we went through, what we see is an opportunity being presented. We see God testing Abraham in order to further increase his faith. And in verse 8 it says, So the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian whom she had born to Abraham, scoffing. Another word there that might be used is mocking. Therefore, she said to Abraham, cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be the heir with my son, namely Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the latter, because of your bondwoman, whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. God was redirecting Abraham. He was redirecting his, his heart and his thoughts upon a truth, upon a promise that God had spoken. 
Yet it says in verse 13, he said to Abraham, I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman because he is your seed. And in light of these verses, as we read on, what I want you to see is that true faith will always be tested. If you're here this morning and you want to see the fulfillment of God's promises in your life, and you know that faith is a big part of that, as we looked at those attributes that are connected to the promises, God, you have to see that as God grows our faith or as God reveals our faith, there's going to be a testing. Why? Because it's only through the testing of our faith that we discover what kind of faith we truly have or discover where or what we have put our faith in. And at times, unbeknownst to us, we, we have deceived ourselves and we put our faith in someone or something else other than God. And it yields nothing good. And this testing of Abraham's faith, is seen as we are told that on the day that Isaac was seen, or was weaned, which is customarily around the age of three, that, that Abraham made a feast, a great feast. And on that day, when there was this feasting, again, a, a time of rejoicing, on that day there was this conflict that arose. As Ishmael scoffed or mocked Isaac, and as a result, Sarah, who saw this, then went to her husband Abraham and, and pleaded with him, instructed him. And the, just so you know, the, the language is even stronger than that in the Hebrew. It's this, this, it's this demanding, it's this commanding uh, of Abraham to cast out Hagar and Ishmael, to get rid of them once and for all. But this was displeasing to Abraham. And we know that because God says to Abraham, don't be displeased with this thing. And it was displeasing to Abraham Yet when he brought this difficult situation before God, God told him to heed the voice of his wife. And this was something that ultimately grieved the heart of Abraham. As Ishmael was, as is pointed out here repeatedly as, as, as really the root behind the problem, even though there were some other things going on here, but Ishmael was Abraham's firstborn son. And that meant a lot. And Abraham was hanging on to that even after the birth of Isaac. It's clear to us. The interesting thing is, is that, that Ishmael was no longer just a young guy. He was 17 years old at this time. 17 years had passed since his birth. And, and you can understand why the thought of casting out his 17-year-old son was a distressing thing to him. He loved his son. And he did not want him to leave. But there was something else that was in play here more than just that father-son relationship. In that God was dealing with Abraham at the heart level. And it had to do with who God had chosen to be the heir. You see, there was still a place of lack of faith in Abraham's heart, even after the birth of Isaac. If you remember, shortly after Ishmael's birth, God had said to Abraham, he had said to him that, that Isaac, remember Ishmael was born, and God said, nah, don't put your faith in that kid. That's not the son of promise. He said, then, matter of fact, he said, at that time, you'll have a son, and his name will be Isaac, and he is the one that I would promise, the one that would come through Sarah. And in that, God pointed out that Ishmael, even though he's your firstborn here, Ishmael will not be the heir. And God declared this is how it would be. And even though Abraham had pleaded with God in Genesis chapter 17, verse 18, saying, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Remember, he was begging God, please just accept this son. And God, in response, told Abraham no. And he told him no because Ishmael was not the son that he had promised. In fact, what we see is, is that Ishmael was the fruit or the result of Abraham and Sarah's lack of faith. He was the result of their lack of faith. But now, with the birth of Isaac, who is the son of promise, the work of Abraham's flesh, the result of his lack of faith, had to be put out. And man, that's such a great spiritual representation for our own lives because in our own lives, is there not those times where we have reacted in a lack of faith? And God would say, that needs to be put out. I'm going to bring forth a fulfillment of my promise into your life, but you can't hang on to those things that were born as a result of the lack of your faith. And not only did Abraham have to humbly submit to God's will, we see that in this moment, Abraham had to grow in faith. 
He had to exercise greater faith in a time of trial and in a time of testing and not only trust God with Isaac's well-being, but trust or trust Ishmael with, 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 um, with that God would care for him. Not only did, did, did Abraham have to trust God with that, but he also had to trust God with Isaac being the heir. So he had to trust him with the future of his son Ishmael, whom he loved, but trust him in the fact that Isaac would be the heir. And so in verse 14 it says, So Abram rose early in the morning, and he took bread and a skin of water, and putting it on her shoulder, he gave it to the boy. Or, and, and he gave it and, and the boy to Hagar and sent her away, and she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Berbashia. And truthfully, as I read this, I think, what a cruel thing. What a harsh thing to do. And I don't mean, I don't mean that directed at Abraham. Really, in my, in my, in my reaction to that, it's, it's, it's a reaction that I go, God, that sounds like a cruel thing to do. A hard thing by casting Hagar out with Ishmael with just such little bread and little water. But we must remember that this thing that God had called or told Abraham to do was ultimately, it was a testing of his faith. Not just the promise of Isaac being Abraham's heir, but also the promise of God which he had spoken to Abraham about Ishmael being cared for. It was a testing of his faith in regard to God caring for Ishmael and rising up a nation through him because he was of Abraham's seed. And again, we read of Abraham's obedience being an act of faith. Abraham's obedience to do this hard thing was an act of faith. And often the things that God calls us to do, following after God, especially in this world that we now live in, guys, is a hard thing. You know, many times I hear people talk about ISIS and, and um, um, you know, the risk of, uh, of, as believers, of suffering physical persecution. And, you know, that question, that old question comes up, would you be willing to die for Jesus? Would you be willing to lay down your life because of your faith in him? I think the greater question always isn't whether you would die for Jesus, but would you, but will we live for Jesus? Because living for Jesus is often the much harder thing to do. Humbling ourselves before God, walking in humility with Him, applying faith and going, God, we're willing to do the hard thing as we trust in you. And this was a hard thing. And obedience is always tied to faith. And by his actions, Abraham again demonstrated, by his actions, he demonstrated that he ultimately believed and trusted in God to do what God said he was going to do. And these events make more sense when they're looked at in light of Paul's words in the book of Galatians. And in Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31, Paul explains that these events with Ishmael and Isaac have spiritual symbolism, that they're symbolic of God's old covenant with Israel and of his new covenant with us, those who make up the church. I would encourage you to go read that on your own. I'm not going to read it to you this morning, and you can turn there later and, 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 and today or whenever and read it and, and keep these things into mind. But today what I want to briefly point out as we, as we wrap this up, I just want to summarize some of Paul's main ideas in that text and compare them to what we have here. First, I want to point out that Paul, in, in um, Galatians chapter 4, points out that Hagar, who was a slave, represents or symbolizes the Old Covenant, specifically Old Covenant and the keeping of the laws of Moses, that all of us, he says, are in bondage to before coming to Jesus. Secondly, Paul tells us that Sarah is a symbol of the new covenant that we've entered into through our faith in Jesus Christ. A covenant not of the law, but of grace, right? That we have become partakers of. Paul then goes on to point out that Ishmael was the one who was born of the flesh out of a lack of faith. And he was the son of a slave, and yet Isaac, the one who was born of the spirit of the promise of God, was born from the son of a free woman. Sarah. 
And Paul's point as he makes these spiritual connections for us is, is that the two sons give us another picture. Ishmael is a picture, of, therefore, of the works of the flesh and the bondage that comes as a result of those who want to live under the law. Yet Isaac is a picture of the freedom that we've received through God's gift of grace and through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, those who have been born of the Spirit of God, you and I. And Paul's argument is that God commanded Abraham to cast out Hagar, the old covenant, cast it out. Cast out Ishmael, the work of the flesh, because God's blessing wasn't upon Ishmael, God's blessing was on Isaac. Therefore, not only are Isaac, Abraham's actions an act of faith, as we see here, as he obeys God, his actions, Abraham's actions in this instance, illustrate how the New Testament really instructs us today how to deal with our own flesh. We don't hang on to it. We don't let it live with us. We don't give it a place to reside. And just as Abraham cast out Ishmael, really the work of the flesh, we were heirs of God through the son of promise. We need to cast out the flesh, which is contrary to to the Holy Spirit of God that dwells within us. Debbie, if you and I want to come back up and you and Robin prepare to lead us out in one last song, I want to close by reading this to you in Galatians 5. It says in Galatians 5, verses um, uh, 16 and 17, it says, Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the lusts of the flesh is against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. You guys know this all too well, but what we're being told here is is that there's a constant battle going on. There's an Isaac and an Ishmael inside each one of us. The flesh and the spirit, and they're contrary to one another. And God tells us to cast the flesh out, to walk in the spirit. In Romans chapter 8, verse 6, it says that we need to be spiritually minded. Why? Because it says to be fleshly minded, to be carnally minded is of death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. In other words, if we choose to not cast out the flesh and, and, and we allow for the flesh, our flesh, the lusts of our flesh, the desires of our flesh, to have dominion over us, it's going to bring death. And if we yet, if we choose to cast out those things, the Bible tells us clearly that we will have life and that we will have peace. And the fact that Abraham cast out Hagar and Ishmael with such bread, with such little bread and water, even though he loved them, he did. He was grieved. He was displeased. He had examples to us that Abraham had learned that the works of his flesh produces only death. And the promises of God is what produces life and peace. Father, I thank you, God, for these truths. Thank you, God, for these reminders. I pray, God, that we would submit ourselves in in, in such a way today, again, even in a new and fresh way, that, God, it would bear the fruit of life and peace in in and through our lives. God, that as we see that faith is such an intricate part of the fulfillment of your promises in our lives, and as we see, God, that true faith can't be exercised without humble submission to you, I pray, God, that we would understand that we, God, would would take hold of humility and apply it to our lives, God so that the world may see that we are different, and so that you, God, may rule and reign through us as you see fit. God, so that we may see our land healed, so that we may see our families healed. God, so that we may see sons and daughters who have turned from you to return back to you. God, people we love, people we know, that we pray for on a daily basis, God, we again lift them up to you, In the name of Jesus Christ, and pray, God, that you would save them from the lies and from their sin and from the deception that this world is throwing down their throat all day long. I pray, God, that you would give us wisdom as we put faith in your word, in in your ways, not in the world's ways. 
And as we live in accordance to your will, God, trusting that you know best and forsaking all others and every other thing that, 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 that portrays itself as, as good or wise or true when we know that it's not. And even when we doubt, God, I pray that you would give us the faith that we need in our times of faithlessness. And I pray these things all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.